All right, you may be seated. This morning for uh, our kids' engagement, I need a volunteer to come up with me on stage. Okay, I saw uh, Mr. Charlie's hands first. Charlie, come on up. You know, it's funny, a couple weeks ago, uh, there were almost no volunteers. And then that Sunday, I gave kids money. And all of a sudden, hands shoot up real quickly. Uh, so, Charlie, thanks for coming up. Sadly, there's no money today. But uh, I do have a couple of jobs that I want you to try to help me with, okay? The first one, Charlie, is that I'm going to light a match. And when I blow out this match, what I want you to do is I want you to grab hold of the smoke. Okay? So we're going to light this match. When I blow it out, I want you to grab hold of the smoke. You ready? Did you get it? You can try again. <laughs> Tough to grab hold of smoke, isn't it? Do you know why? Well, I mean, smoke is elusive, and it's air. it's like air. It's 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 intangible. It's there, and we can see it. But you, as soon as you try to grab hold of it, it vanishes on you. Right? Okay. I got one other task for you. You see that bowl of water over there? That is our baptism font. And normally we use it for baptisms. Today, Charlie, I want you to try to reach in there and turn, like, form that water into a cube. (laughs) There you go. Turn it into a box. Can you do it? You can't do it. Charlie, why can't we do it? It, it's water. Water is formless, right? And as soon as you try to shape it into something, unless you have a container to put it in, it, it, it falls apart, right? Well, Charlie, um, hold on, hold on, hold on, Charlie. You, good job at trying. Uh, you failed. But, but you were supposed to fail in order for my illustration to work. So in that way, you succeeded. High five. Good job. You can head back to your seat. All right, now the reason, the reason I used this as an illustration this morning is because this kind of feels like the task that is before us today as we continue in our sermon series in the Proverbs. Over the past several weeks, we've been looking at the introduction to the Proverbs, and the first four chapters have been all about the pursuit of wisdom. It's been a wise father's instruction to his son about how valuable wisdom is, uh, about how he should be uh, willing to gain wisdom at all costs, and how he should always and only choose the way of wisdom over the way of folly. Uh, and, And so what we've learned so far is that Proverbs is all about the pursuit of wisdom. And that's important for us to know, but there has been a bit of a problem. And that problem is this. That in the midst of all of that exhortation to value and to seek and to gain wisdom, the book of Proverbs hasn't been super clear on what exactly wisdom is. And I know that that's been a bit of a problem because over the past five weeks, several of you have come up to several of us after the services and have asked, what is wisdom? Right? And you've asked, how would we define it? And if we've been a little bit squirrely with our answers in those moments, it's at least in part because the book of Proverbs itself never really defines wisdom for us. The book of Proverbs isn't like a dictionary that gives a clear and concise definition. Instead, as Eric mentioned, it's much more like a poem that describes 
and illustrates an idea. And for that reason, defining wisdom from the Proverbs becomes almost an impossible task. Like grabbing hold of intangible smoke or molding into a shape formless water. In theory, you can do it, but in practice, it may not be entirely possible. And yet, the concept of wisdom is so important for our lives. As we've seen from the wise fathers pleading with his son and by extension his pleading with us. This is so important that we must seek to understand and grapple with exactly what wisdom is. Even in our reading this morning from Proverbs 4 where we are told that the beginning of wisdom is to get wisdom. If we don't really know what wisdom is, how can we get it? And if we... If we don't get it, we'll never have it. The point being, if we want to be wise, we need to gain some understanding of what wisdom is. And so this morning, that's what we're going to seek to do. Not to give a a definitive definition, because the Proverbs and the Scriptures don't. But they do give us categories of wisdom. And they do give us characteristics of wisdom. And they do give us requirements for wisdom. And that's what we're going to try to consider today. So kids, I have some questions for you on your activity sheets that will help you follow along this morning. And everyone else, if you have a Bible, um, everyone including the kids, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Proverbs chapter 1. Our reading this morning was Proverbs chapter 4, but much of what's in that chapter is repetitive to things that we've already said. And so... Uh, We're going to backtrack this morning back to chapter 1 as a starting point for our attempt to grab hold of and give form to the concept of wisdom. Now wisdom is defined in the Merriam-Webster dictionary in three categories. The first is an ability to discern inner qualities and relationships, which is insight. The second is uh, the use of good sense, which is, is like judgment. And the third is the accumulation of philosophical or scientific learning, which is knowledge. This is how the dictionary defines wisdom. That it's, it's some combination of insight and judgment and knowledge. And to an extent, the scriptures agree. We saw that right at the beginning of Proverbs, where in chapter 1, verse 2, Solomon lays out the purpose of the Proverbs, stating that they are given in order to know wisdom. And then he gives a number of additional elements that accompany and contribute to and make up this idea of wisdom. So in addition to wisdom, Solomon talks about instruction. Which is the idea of being trained, often with a strong accountability. For instance, through the the personal confrontation of friends. Or or through learning from one's mistake. These are ways that we are instructed, Proverbs will eventually show us. Some of the ways by which uh, we are instructed in life and gain wisdom. After instruction, Solomon talks about uh, understanding words of insight. Or discernment. 
which is the ability to notice distinctions between options or arrays of possibilities. So not just between the binary of what is right and what is wrong, but between the nuances of what is good or better or best. Wisdom is noticing the shades of differences that may exist in any kind of decision that you face. After insight, Solomon references prudence or discretion. This is the ability to plan and to live strategically. It's knowing not just what needs to be done at any given situation, which is kind of like knowledge, but it's knowing how to do it. It's knowing when to do it. That's prudence. These are all aspects of wisdom. And they all align with the dictionary's definition of wisdom as a combination of insight and judgment and knowledge, among other things. And for the most part, uh, the world would look at someone who possesses these traits and they would say, that's a wise person. But the scriptures may disagree. For according to the scriptures, wisdom is certainly not less than this. But it is actually more than this. That's what we see in verse 3 of Proverbs 1, where we read that wisdom is not just about receiving instruction in wise dealing, but it is also about receiving instruction in righteousness and in justice and in equity. Which means that according to the scriptures, there is a moral component to wisdom. If you think about it, this only makes sense. Because you could look at someone like Adolf Hitler and argue that he experienced a great deal of training throughout his upbringing. And that he demonstrated a profound amount of insight into human nature through the way that he manipulated millions of people. And that he exhibited incredible prudence in the shrewdness of the execution of his plans. By all of those standards of knowledge and insight and judgment, and based on at least the initial success of his plans of a relatively small country controlling almost all of Europe, you could probably argue that Hitler was one of the wisest men to ever live. But he would never pass the morality test. For he clearly had not received or accepted, or at least understood, instruction in righteousness, in injustice, and in equity. And in the end, despite all of his instruction, and all of his understanding, and all of his insight, and all of his prudence, Hitler proved himself to be a fool. His feet ran to evil. He made haste to shed blood. He set an ambush for his own life and lied in wait for his own blood because he was greedy for unjust gain. One of the marks of a fool in verses 16 through 19. In the end, he set a trap for himself that required him to take his own life. And that speaks nothing of the judgment that he would face when he eventually encountered the living God. In some people's eyes and in his own eyes, Hitler appeared wise. But according to the scriptures, he was a fool. Because he had no moral compass. 
And so wisdom requires not only knowledge and insight and judgment, but it requires morality as well. A sense of what is right and what is wrong, what is just and what is unjust, what is fair and what is unfair. You cannot be wise without that. So there's a moral component to wisdom, which, which brings wisdom into the realm of virtue. To, to be wise, you must use your knowledge and your insight and your judgment for good. But that's not all either. Because in addition to a moral component of wisdom, there is a faith component that is required for wisdom as well. That's made clear in verse 7 of Proverbs chapter 1, where, where Solomon tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. He's saying here that you cannot even begin down the road towards wisdom without this. It's the starting point of the journey. And we see profound examples of why that is the case in our two New Testament readings from this morning. The first of those that I want to consider is from our gospel reading in Mark chapter 10. It's the story of the rich young ruler. And what's fascinating about the rich young ruler is that presumably he covers all of the other bases for wisdom. He's obviously got knowledge and insight and judgment as he's been quite successful in life, accumulating a great deal of wealth. And he's a ruler over people, which we learn from Luke's account of this story. In addition to that, he's also obviously a man with strong, a strong moral compass. As evidenced by the fact that when he is confronted with the need to follow God's laws as a way to inherit eternal life, this man indicates that he has kept God's laws since his youth. He says he's followed all of God's laws for all of his life. So this man is smart and successful and he's moral. He knows righteousness and justice and equity. By all accounts, he is a smart and virtuous man. He appears to check all of the boxes. But in the end, that doesn't prove to be enough. Because when confronted with the final requirement of making Jesus the most important priority in his life, the rich young ruler goes away sad. He's not willing to pay the cost. He views his riches as more valuable than the richness of a relationship with God. And so he walks away from eternal life. What a short-sighted decision. What a fool. This is the case of so many wise and successful and moral people in the world. That's what we see in our reading from 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2, where Paul makes very clear that there is a type of wisdom in this world that is of this age that is very different from the wisdom of God or from biblical wisdom. Paul says there is a secret, hidden wisdom of God. Which those who think they are wise in this world cannot see, as evidenced in their rejection of Jesus, who God sent for our salvation, and who Paul declares is the wisdom of God. 
There's so many people in the world who are accomplished and wise and moral and, and who by worldly standards are good. Who appear to live model and exemplary lives that do not accept that Jesus is the Son of God, sent by God for our salvation. Because the message of the cross, that Jesus had to die for our sins and be raised to new life for our salvation, to them that message seems like foolishness. And yet in the end, what the Scriptures declare is that ultimately it is the wise of this world who will prove themselves to be the fool. When God destroys the wisdom of the wise and makes foolish the wisdom of the world through the salvation that he offers in Christ. And if you think about it, in the end, this becomes very clear. And ultimately, who shows themselves to be the fool? The one who allows themselves to drown because they're too proud to reach out to the life rope that's been thrown to them? Or the person who knows their desperate need and clings to the resource that is thrown to them from above in the midst of the storm? This is why faith is an essential component of wisdom. For ultimately, you cannot be wise without a fear of the Lord. Without having a faith in God who has revealed himself in Jesus. And so in the end, this is what the Bible says is wisdom. It is the knowledge and the insight and the discernment and morality and faith that not only allows someone to know the life that is truly life, but to actually live the life that is truly life. It's having a knowledge and an awareness and an understanding of how God has created the world to work and a submission to those ways. This is biblical wisdom. This is what is required to be truly wise, not just in this world, but in the world to come. And when all has been said and done, there's only one person who's ever actually lived that reality. For according to the Bible, there was only one person who, ever, who was ever truly and fully wise. We heard about him in our New Testament reading where Paul said that Jesus is the wisdom of God. He's the only truly wise man to ever live. The rest of us fail over and over again to meet that standard. We fall into the category of fools. This is the good news of the gospel. That Jesus loves fools. Did you catch it in the gospel reading today? With the rich young ruler? When the man thought that he had it all together and was proud of all that he had accomplished, Mark tells us that Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Jesus loved the rich young ruler right in the midst of the height of his foolishness. 
And He loves you and your foolishness too. And He loves me and my foolishness as well. This is the good news of the Gospel. That God loves the fool. And He wants to make them wise. The way that He does that is He extends an invitation to follow Him. He gives us the opportunity to give up our ideas of wisdom and to receive His. He gives us the chance to turn away from our false wisdom of this world and to turn to the true wisdom of God. This is where, and it's only where, real wisdom begins. It's not just for the deep thinkers or for the high achievers or for the morally superior. What it takes is not brains or opportunity or performance, but a decision. It's simply a matter of do you want it? Do you want the wisdom of God? Come and get it, Jesus says. Ask for it in faith, the Apostle James tells us. God will give it to us. This, church, is the beginning of wisdom. It's to get wisdom by saying yes to Jesus. May we all do so for God's glory. And for our good. Amen.